You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And if you've been following the New York Review of Books over the past few years, you'll be quite familiar with today's guest and with his valiant crusade for the creation of a massive international digital public library, one based not on commerce and profit, but rather on Thomas Jefferson's formulation that knowledge is the common property of mankind. Historian Robert Daunton is Harvard's Carl H. Forsheimer University professor and director of the Harvard University Library. Former president of the American Historical Association, the history of the book is my guest's field of specialization, and his mission now would seem to be not only the book's preservation in the great research libraries of our country and of the world, but its easy circulation for everyone everywhere in this digital age of the Internet. Why then, one must ask Dr. Daunton, his rejoicing that, as the Wall Street Journal had it recently, Google Inc.'s six-year struggle to bring all the world's books to the Internet has suffered another big setback at the hands of a federal judge. Why another New York Review of Books article by my guest titled, Google's Loss, the Public's Gain. Is that a fair question? <laughs> it's a fair question. You know, I shouldn't present myself as uh, David fighting Goliath, although people sometimes make that comparison. I shouldn't take myself too seriously. And furthermore, I should admit to a great admiration for Google. Google has fabulous engineers. They, they have chutzpah. They had the daring to try to digitize millions and millions of books and make them available. So in a way, I'm all admiration for Google. But, but, and there's a big but, you saw it coming, they basically were to commercialize access to knowledge. And what the price was going to be was very unclear. Essentially, they came to us in the library world and said, let us digitize your books and then we will let you buy back access to the, your own books for a price which remained to be determined basically by Google. It was not exactly a deal that was in the interests of the general reading public. Our job as librarians is to make books accessible to readers for free. So Google's ambition was magnificent, but its fundamental commercial nature, I think, undercut that ambition, and therefore we needed an alternative. And that alternative is what you mentioned, a digital public library of America, a kind of library that will have millions and millions of books, more than in the Library of Congress, which has 30 million volumes, more than have ever existed in any library, but to make them accessible free of charge online to the American people. But Dr. Daunton, that sort of reminds me of that old story about uh, the Lady of the Night uh, when she was talking about price, uh, not principle. Are you suggesting that if the price were right, uh, you would not be as concerned about Google's uh, involvement? Well, when I originally read the so-called settlement, that's a very complicated legal document that was to resolve 
a legal dispute. On the one hand, Google. On the other hand, the Authors Guild, the Association of American Publishers, who sued Google for infringement of copyright. When I read the settlement, uh, I thought there are no limits as to the price that could be charged. Uh, furthermore, there are lots of other difficulties. Basically, it set up a monopolistic control of all kinds of books that were out of print but in copyright, in, including so-called orphan books. It gets complicated there. What do you but, mean by orphan books? Well, an orphan book is a book that is covered by copyright, uh, out of print as, as a rule, but whose copyright owner cannot be identified or has not yet been identified. Now, this may sound arcane, but estimates of the orf number of orphan books vary from 2.5 million to 5 million titles. This is a vast corpus of literature of all kinds. So it's crucial that orphan books be made available to people in such a way that if the copyright owner comes forward, is identified, that copyright owner can't sue the entity that's making the book available, Google or the National Digital Public Library of America. In other words, you need protection against litigation. And that's part of this very complicated lawsuit that was came before the federal district court in New York and was resolved by the rejection of this document called the settlement. Uh, now, I think that was a good thing, actually. The uh, rejection. I, exactly. I think it was a good thing for the public. Maybe in the long run it will even be a good thing for Google because Google did not begin by trying to create a commercial library and a commercial book business. That evolved in the course of the negotiations with the copyright owners. Well, now that those negotiations have been declared, if not illegal, anyhow, um, not, uh, not agreeable to the court, something else has to happen. And uh, I think that Google has a lot to contribute. So I would hope that if we, we are going to create this digital library, I would hope that Google would find it in its interest, actually, to cooperate. How do you explain the fact that many university libraries or a considerable number of major libraries did go along with the Google plan? Well, they were attracted by the basic principle of making books accessible to the public. They were not as obsessed as I was by the danger of exorbitant pricing. Uh, so we disagreed about that. Uh, many of my colleagues uh, said to me, don't worry about uh, exorbitant pricing because the market will take care of that danger. What market? There wouldn't be any competition, would there be? Exactly. That's what, that was my reply. There wouldn't be competition. And furthermore, there, it's not a supply and demand kind of mechanism. Because there's no competition, uh, Google Book Search could charge any price it wanted. And we in the world of libraries have become worried by what we call cocaine pricing. That is, they could set the price of access to this great digital database of books at a low level. And then when the users get hooked on it, they could ratchet it up gradually until it became unbearable. This has happened to us in the world of libraries with the price of scholarly journals. There is one scholarly journal, Tetrahedron, which costs 
uh, $39,000 a year for one subscription. The publishers of these journals basically charge any price they want, and the price increase in journals has been crippling to libraries. This could happen with Google Book Search. Google says, trust us, believe in our model, do no evil. Well, I, I, I know the Googlers. I think they're wonderful people, young engineers, young engineers who want to uh, get on with things, digitize books, make them accessible. I mean, they're full of energy and intelligence. But who is going to own Google five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I think it's very possible that less public-spirited people could take over Google and just milk it for money at the, at the expense of the public. So this, these libraries, their assets are a public at, good, and I think they need to be made accessible to the public free of charge. But I haven't answered your question about the Lady of the Night. Uh, I don't actually identify libraries with ladies of the night, but I see your point. And people often say to me, this sounds like the utopian fantasy of some college professor. Well, it was a utopian fantasy in the days of Jefferson. The founding fathers believed that access to knowledge, that printed word, would be a great liberating force. And if the public were not educated, you couldn't really make democracy work. I think they were right. It's not a, uh, an unusual view, but of course in those days uh, with limited literacy and access to books and so on, there was a kind of utopian quality to this thinking, especially in the case of Condorcet in France, who thought that literacy, reading, writing would be the great engine of progress. Well, that was not the case. Uh, not exactly the case. In the modern world, the Internet does make that earlier Enlightenment fantasy possible. But I still haven't answered your question. How can we pay for it? Indeed. Well, um, on October 1st last year, I invited a group of leaders of uh, great foundations computer scientists, leaders of the great cultural institutions of Washington, the Library of Congress, the National Archives, the Smithsonian, the National Endowment for the Humanities, to come together uh, at a meeting in Harvard and discuss the possibility of creating this, this entity that seemed like a dream. This public good institution. That's right. And at that time, we called it a Digital Library of America. Well. Uh, we had a day and a half of debate. We looked at all aspects of the problem. There are lots of them. But within 30 minutes, everyone agreed that we could pay for it. We could raise the money. It was such an important thing that we would create a coalition of foundations, and each foundation would chip in enough money to get the thing up and running. Now, how much would it cost? We had various estimates. Uh, it's hard to estimate something like this, but we have examples of similar attempts in other countries. In fact, we did research on 21 digital libraries that have been created all over. Japan, the best one is probably Norway, there's an excellent uh, pro program in the Netherlands, and then there is Europeana, which is an attempt to create a Europe-wide digital library free of charge. So we have a pretty good idea of 
how this could be done. It's not as if the Europeans have yet succeeded in doing it, but they've succeeded in getting a good start. But didn't the agreement that was rejected uh, for the moment by the federal court, didn't the agreement involve two uh, sides of that equation where there needs to be a third that you represent, the public? But those two other sides, uh, one Google in this instance, and the other, the authors, the writers, who also want a piece of the pie. Cool. Now, you're not going to have any control over that, are you? The piece of the pie that go to the creative people. Well, the pie itself won't exist if the settlement is not accepted by the courts. True. This is a legal question. It gets a little complicated because it's a class action suit. And the first duty of the judge, Judge Chin, was to see if the Authors Guild and the publishers truly represented the class of copyright owners. Well, do they? Uh, you may be a member of the Authors Guild yourself as an author. There are 8,000 members of the Authors Guild, but there are well over 100,000 people alive today who've published a book. So Judge Chin had doubts about the representativeness of the Authors Guild and the Association of American Publishers. But independently of that, uh, the, the, when we go to create, and we are creating this, we call it DPLA, Digital Public Library of America, we will respect copyright. We do not want to undercut, undercut the legitimate interests of authors in an income from works they have created. So how can we do that? Well, basically two ways. I mentioned orphan books. We need mm -hmm. orphan book legislation from Congress. There have been two attempts to do this already in 2006, 2008. They almost got through Congress, but then Congress had to adjourn and get reelected. And people in Congress said, Google's taking care of it, why worry? Well, Google's no longer taking care of it. We do need to worry. So we need orphan book legislation, and I think that's very doable. There's no interest that will be uh, violated in passing such legislation. But isn't there still some basic uh, conflict, let me use that, yeah. uh, uh, conflict of interest uh, 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 concept here? Uh, you're, as a librarian, as the librarian of Harvard, as a man for whom books have always been uh, the basis of your studies, the basis of your scholarship, um, uh, you want the Jeffersonian notion uh, to be uh, realized in real life. You want me to be able to have free access to all of these uh, works. What about the creators? You still haven't answered that. You've no. said that the guilds represent a tiny, tiny percentage of the people who create, who write. Yes. But what about the people who uh, do create? Well, I, I respect that. I mean, uh, I well, have What many are you going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, this is just a proposal. Everything is taking shape. We don't have a finished model yet to present, although we will present one soon, maybe next October. So what will we do about this? One, we must respect copyright. Two, we can deal with books published actually between 1923 and 64. That's the era of the orphan books. Right. That's not a great problem. But what about current books or books that were published 
10, 20 years ago and that are still covered by copyright. We must respect the copyrights and so we need to find a, an arrangement that will give the authors a legitimate return on the use of those books. Now there are different ways you can do it. One is to create a pool of money and to give them in effect royalties for the use of their books. A second one is to create a collective entity and there's an elaborate legal formula for doing this. It's called an extended collective licensing agreement. That means you could have many writers whose books are no longer selling at all, sitting unread in remote shelves of libraries, um, persuade these authors, or these authors to make the books available free of charge. It's in their interest. At that point, the, they're no longer deriving income from them, and, and they you, want readers. You've indicated in one of your writings that many such people have indicated Yes. That they would like this. They, yes. they would rather be read than not read. They want their ideas yes. to be disseminated. That's exactly the case. The Norwegians have already done it. Now you may say to me, well, the number of books available in Norwegian mm -hmm. is rather smaller than the number available in English. I grant you that. But this would be a voluntary program. And I think that we can build up momentum to get many authors to cooperate. Those who want don't want to cooperate and want income from their books would be given such an income. But believe me, if you've published a book 30 years ago, the income from the occasional reading of that book is going to be rather small. So I don't really think it's an insuperable problem except for current books. Now the DPLA uh, the, those of us who are trying to organize it haven't yet reached a decision about how close to the contemporary market we want to come. Some would say make everything available including books published yesterday. Others would say let's have a moving wall so that we won't publish any books, uh, make available any books that were published five years ago or ten years ago because uh, we don't want to interfere with the contemporary market, which is where the money is to be made by authors. And then it would be a moving wall because each year it would get uh, more and more books would become available. Something, some arrangement like that is quite feasible. What puzzles me is DPLA. Why isn't A, W, not of America, but of the world? It should be of the world and it will be for the world and we're working on it. How? Well, um, we've had extensive conversations with Europeana, which is this attempt to create a similar digital public library for all of Europe. And we've had conversations with heads of libraries in individual European countries. And we're all agreed that we need to cooperate. Cooperation isn't difficult because it's a matter of designing the right technical infrastructure. Sounds fancy. But my computer scientist friends say, it's doable. This is not rocket science. We can design all kinds of codes so that uh, books will, in American libraries that have been digitized will be immediately accessible to readers in China, in Africa, in Europe uh, without, with a click of the switch. And you're talking about the ability to download. Yes. To print out. Yes. And to build your own library. That's exactly. correct. That's correct. Now, how do you deal with the, uh, it's funny, I was going to say, use the word accusation, but uh, 
because I don't mean accusation in its usual sense. How do you deal with the um, uh, congratulatory notion that you are a utopian in this? Well, actually, there's a lot to be said for utopianism. I think the founding fathers were utopians, and the progressive thinkers of the Enlightenment were utopians. We need a dose of utopianism in this hard-headed world of lobbies and conflicting interests and so on. Another word might be idealism or dedication to principles. But my point is, although this is, I think, a principle that goes back to the founding of this country, to the first article in the Constitution, to the first copyright law of 1790, to the writings of Jefferson and Madison and Benjamin Franklin, you find it everywhere at the origins of the American Republic, this principle that the public should have access to knowledge. It interests me so much because I was thinking as I read you about Andrew Carnegie. Um, uh, One may think of him as a robber baron, but uh, one thinks of him most importantly with his uh, creation of public libraries so that we might have the access that you're talking about. That's right, Uh, and I think Carnegie's ideal was a wonderful ideal. And you know, it happened not through the state, but through private initiative. And that's what we intend to do. We are not going to go to Congress and ask for a penny. We want progressive legislation about orphan books and that sort of thing, sure. But this is something that will express what we have in America that is unique and hardly exists outside of this country, and that is public-spirited foundations. I think our tradition of foundations who use their wealth for the public good is a marvelous thing. And the, the, the leaders of foundations have recognized that this idea is so important that they're willing to band together and to make it happen financially. May I ask you, because we, we have comparatively little time left, do something for me that I don't often ask my guests, take the other side, whatever that means. Do you see criticisms of what you're offering now that you feel are valid? Yes, there's one actually that worries me, and that sometimes comes from the world of public libraries. They say, if you pretend to be a public library for America, maybe that will undercut the funding of public libraries all over the country. My answer to that is this great digital library will be like a back room, a digital back room to your small town public library or city neighborhood library. It will give all of the citizens access to the entirety of literature in all fields, but it's not going to provide them with the current bestseller, the the, the current DVD, the sorts of things that most people go to libraries for, aside from the services of libraries, which are very important. So we want to get across the idea that in calling it a digital public library of America, we're not going to be a substitute for the traditional public libraries. And there's a danger of misunderstanding on that front. Perhaps, but I think of you as the... um, uh, head of perhaps the most distinguished university library in the country. Uh, You're Harvard's university librarian. What about the great research institutions? Is there no danger in this for them? 
No, I think it's a great opportunity for them. Uh, my central policy as uh, the uh, leader of Harvard's library is to open it up, to make its intellectual wealth available to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. I, Harvard's university library is the greatest university library in the world. 17 million volumes, special collections of all sorts. It's fabulous for the students and faculty of Harvard, but I think we must think of it not just as a Harvard asset, but as a national asset. And we can indeed open it up through digitization to the rest of the world. So I feel that's part of the mission of Harvard is to reach out to the American people and not to turn in on itself. And in fact, that's really, I think, what the current administration of Harvard is doing. Uh, in, in being a great library, we are great for the rest of the country. And this is true of other great libraries as well. So if we can band together, it's something that will matter for ordinary people. I mean, another objection is they say, oh, this is elitist. You're thinking of a library for other researchers and college professors. That's not the case at all. There, this will be a library for K-12 schools, for community colleges, for individuals who want access to books. There are all kinds of people in this country who are thinking of writing a history of their local town or have some idea and need resources to, for, for research. So it's not an elitist plan that will please college professors. It's something that will make the entirety of our cultural heritage available to all of the people. Dr. Daunton, as we reach the end of our program, I am grateful to you for expressing this idealism, even if I have my own questions about shall I be vulgar and talk about spitting against the wind in American society. Thank you for joining me. And stay where you are so we can do still another program. Thank you. Thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.